to Genesis chapter 50, I invite your attention this morning, the 50th chapter of Genesis. We come this week in the conclusion to our series in Genesis to one of the most mysterious and most exhilarating and most comforting yet most confounding, potentially most confounding doctrines in the Bible. It's a It's an idea that has been touched on several times in these months in Genesis, just barely tasted oftentimes like a subtle spice in the background of the entire narrative of Genesis, and now it comes exploding through the surface in the 20th verse of Genesis chapter 50. With one sentence here uttered to his brothers, Joseph sends theologians to their studies with furrowed brows, Doubters of God's impeccable goodness to their bullhorns. Christians to a restful place of calm assurance, even in the midst of waves and winds. To Genesis 50, but first to prayer. Father in heaven, open thy word to us, we pray. Send your spirit mightily upon us, we ask to devour your word with eagerness and gladness. And, Father, to embrace your truth and in so doing embrace you and find for ourselves truth, find for ourselves comfort, find for ourselves certainty and assurance that our great God is greater than ever we imagined. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 50. Now you remember that Joseph's brothers have come to Joseph with a story about their late father asking before his death that Joseph forgive his brothers for the sin that they've committed against him. Whether that story was uh, fictional or not, we're not entirely certain. But we do know they add their own plea for forgiveness uh, to that story. Joseph weeps at the very thought that they should still be afraid of him, still fearful that from his position of power he might wreak some vengeance of some sort upon them, some revenge. And he tells them this in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The doctrine to which I alluded just a moment ago, is this, the doctrine of concurrence. Concurrence, or sometimes called concursus, by which is meant God's supporting of and working His will in and through second causes. Now, you often read in your Bibles about an event, and that event is ascribed to a man. So-and-so fought and won the battle. And then you read another passage somewhere else, another event, and it says that God brought these things to pass. And we have no problem with either one of those. In one case, the focus is on the secondary cause. The man did this. In the other, the primary cause. The actions are workings of God. And then there are all those passages like this one in the Bible, in which the two are brought marvelously and wonderfully together. 
It is, is, it, is it man who has brought these things to pass in Joseph's life? Or is it God? A false dilemma, Joseph might say. It's both. There's an ultimate cause, a first cause, a primary cause, and a secondary cause. There is God and there is man. And one or the other are both maybe given as reasons for what has happened, what has transpired, not only in Joseph's life, but in every event, in all of history, in everything that's ever happened. Remember another great event in the Bible recorded in 2 Samuel. Eliezer strikes down the Philistines. He fights so hard, you remember, that his hand clings to the sword. But in the very next verse, it says that it is the Lord who brought about this great victory. Which was it, Eliezer or God? You know the answer. Yes. Both. Which brings me to the first point this morning, that for, that for virtually everything in history, for virtually every event in your life, there are concurrent causes. And wise Christians learn to see everything in their lives through, if you will, through both of these lenses. They see that the locomotive of their life Indeed, of all of life, all of history runs not on one track, but on two. And sometimes on three. Like the old Lionel train sets. Some of you remember from when you were children. Because that's the way the Bible describes our lives and the events of them. I'll add quickly here that forgetfulness of this fact of concurrence this doctrine of the simultaneous actions of God and man, sometimes God and Satan, or God and Satan and man, I say a forgetfulness of those things that all three often are acting has misled many a Christian into a false understanding of things, of the world. An over-preoccupation with secondary causes, with man, but especially with the devil and his demons, has caused some entire sections of the Christian church to lose touch with the sovereignty of God. With the terrible result that far too much power and far too much independence is ascribed to demons and to the demonic. Other parts of the church become so focused on the first cause or primary cause, that is, of course, God, that they lose touch with the real and genuine responsibility of man. Yet others focus so much on the responsibility of man that they forget that God is sovereign, the first cause of all things with devastating results that range from pride to despair. Now, Joseph's statement to his brothers is but one of the Bible's helpful correctives for all such errors. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You see, it's not only God, nor is it only men who are at work in history, nor only Satan. 
for that matter. It's all of them. And often all three of them at the same time. In his book, The Theology of the Sacraments, the Scottish theologian of a generation ago, D.M. Bailey, tells this story. Some years ago, a very able student of our college suddenly fell ill and died. He was the only son of parents who had lost their only other child while he was very young. They were poor and simple folk. The father was a half-blind ex-service man, and they were making a living by keeping a small poultry farm. Their son was the joy and the crown of their lives, and they did all they could for him. He was the dukes of his school, then distinguished himself in his arts course at the university, came to St. Mary's College, was suddenly taken ill, and died. A few days after the funeral, I mounted a bus to go out to the country to visit his parents. There happened to come into the bus an old acquaintance, a layman whom I hadn't seen for years, quite untheological even unintellectual man. He sat beside me and presently asked where I was going. I told him and gave him an outline of the sad story. Suddenly, he said to me, Now, was it God who did that, or was it the devil? What is the answer? There is no short or easy answer. And he was right. That is true. There is no short and easy answer. We need to be very careful with this doctrine. We need to explain it carefully to others. We need, in the process of talking about such things, never to compromise the character and compassion of God when we answer these tough, tough questions. But at the same time, we must be willing to say... We must be willing to say that there is an answer, and that the answer is that it is both God and the devil did it. In fact, there is a marvelous example of this in the scripture, and I love to surprise people with it the way I was surprised years ago when first it was pointed out to me. You remember King David nearing the end of his life? does that terrible thing, that thing that was quite wrong and sinful for him to do. He took a census of Israel. Now, why did he do it? I mean, why? What, what, what moved him to take this census of Israel? Well, in one passage in First Chronicles, it says that the devil incited David to do this. But the parallel passage in 2 Samuel says that God incited David to take the census. Then, after he does it, David's heart strikes him and he says to God, I have sinned greatly and what I have done. (laughs) Who was it? Satan or God or David? Yes, it was God, it was Satan, and it was David. All three, all three acting all at the same time concurrently, which is why the doctrine is called concurrence. And that's the first point for virtually every action 
every event or occurrence, there are concurrent causes. Now, it's a, a mystery, of course, and, and we don't necessarily like mysteries. We, we like everything neat and, and clean and laid out, all the better if on paper. We like our doctrines neatly pressed, placed in nice, clean, tiny boxes that we can open up from time to time and admire. But the Bible is not like that. Because God is not like that. The Bible is full of mysteries, things that we cannot figure out, things we cannot pin down in our little minds or comprehend. We must simply learn to live with them. Concurrence, God's working and second causes working simultaneously must be high on the list of doctrines, but there is one still higher on that list, and it is this. Second, God in his concurrent acts, God uses evil for his own purposes. God uses evil for his own purposes. God's sovereign hands never drop the reins of the evil that Joseph's brothers committed against him. He never stopped controlling all things. His hands were on the wheel. God's were the whole time. I know. I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking. But God doesn't do evil and God can't be blamed for evil. And you're right. God's character is such that, that he hates evil with a perfect Pure, unalloyed hatred. In him is light and there is no darkness at all. And at the same time, our Bibles tell us plainly that nothing happens. Nothing happens in all the world apart from the will and the counsel of God. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, Paul writes to the Ephesians. Even the terrible things, the 9-11s, the Virginia Tech shootings, all of these, God is working out according to the counsel of his will. Cho Sung Hui meant it for evil. God meant it for good. I told you there's a mystery here and great deeps that open up before us in this doctrine. This is God, as someone has said, this is God using sin sinlessly. In this case, it is God using the jealousy, the, the cunning, even the betrayal of Joseph's brothers to accomplish his own purposes. The psalmist sees these sort of things as well. In Psalm 42, evil men are troubling him, but he sees the situation for what it is truly behind those evil men. And he looks to God as the ultimate cause behind this trial. And he says this to God, all your breakers, all your waves have come over me. Now, I'm not even going to try to begin 
explaining to you how it is that God uses evil and sin and yet remains perfectly righteous himself. I cannot tell you how God remains sovereign in control over even the actions, even the innermost thoughts of the most wicked of men and women, while those same men and women think and act freely of their own volition so that they remain, every one of them, completely responsible and culpable for their own sin. But I will tell you this. I find, and I think you should too, I find great comfort and encouragement in knowing that he does. No plan of men, no attack of wicked men or devils can happen apart from the sovereign will of your God. It was not Satan you remember, but God, who said, Have you considered my servant Job? Even Satan himself is on God's chain, at God's beck and call. So that even sin itself and wickedness must ultimately redound to God's glory and God's honor. Even the wickedness of men praises God, in his providence, even sin, even sin is used by God for good. And that's the third point this morning. God not only uses evil for his own purposes, he uses evil for good, for your good. That is true in the narrow sense. In the everyday sense, the action of Joseph's brothers, you remember, the murderous thoughts of their hearts, their ice-cold hatred of their brother that, that willingly sent them to, to throwing him into a pit and then selling him to passing traitors, all of that was actually for the saving of his family. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, says Joseph. Why? To bring about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. God had a purpose for this family, for this father, for these brothers, for their descendants, but in the narrow sense, just for them, in the personal sense, God accomplished his purpose for them precisely through the wickedness of these very men. In the same way, though you may not be able to detect exactly how, God is constantly using the sin that is committed against you for your good. Yet he is. You can't tell today perhaps how it is that that, that harsh word, that false accusation, that, that, that insult... That injury that was done you or your reputation or even your body is for your good. And you may not understand it for many, many years to come. It's been well said that the book of God's providence is like Hebrew. It has to be read backwards. But it is true. It is absolutely true. True, in the narrow sense, in the everyday sense, God is using the evils that are done against you for your good. Every one of them. 
Now that's an amazing thing. But I find it even more amazing. He is not only using others' sins against me for my good. He is using my sins for my good. That's truly amazing. Now, that is not to say, of course, that I am less guilty or you are less guilty when you or or I sin. Of course not. Nor that you should sin more freely. Say, God's using it all for good. Not at all. Of course not. But in the sovereign providence of God, it is so. That he takes even your own sins and turns them to your good. John Bunyan said of himself, the guilt of sin did help me much. Samuel Rutherford encouraged others with this counsel, Christ has a use for all your corruptions. James Fraser, the Scott Covenanter, took it even further, and he says this, My sins have in a manner done me more good than my graces. Or here's Richard Hooker, the 16th century Anglican. I'm not afraid, he writes, not afraid to affirm boldly with St. Augustine. We used a prayer of his just a little while ago in the confession of our sin. Not afraid to affirm boldly with St. Augustine that men puffed up through a proud opinion of themselves receive a great benefit at the hands of God when they're permitted and that grievously to transgress. Ask the very soul of Peter, and it shall be undoubtedly made, make you, uh, it shall undoubtedly make you this answer. My eager protestations made in the glory of my ghostly strength I am ashamed of. But those crystal tears wherewith my sin and weakness were bewailed have procured for me my endless joy. My strength was my ruin. My fall has been my stay. No doubt Joseph's brothers, though they hated their sin, rightly repented of it with bitter tears, nonetheless could look back and see how it was precisely their sin that God used to save their lives and made provision for them and even for their little ones in Egypt. And you too, brothers and sisters, may look back in your own lives and find some of the most valuable lessons, some of the most important turning points in your life, some of the greatest things that have happened to you were directly connected to those crystal tears that followed the sins that you hate bitterly to recall. In this narrow sense, God uses evil, uses sin, even sins committed against you, even your own sins for your good. 
But it's also true in a wider sense. God had plans for the descendants of these men, for their children, and for their children after them, generation after generation. They must be in Egypt. They must grow there as a nation. Literally, millions of lives must be shaped and forged in Egypt in preparation for the taking of the promised land centuries later. Here, jealous passions stoked into murderous flames by the brothers of Joseph is God's very means for setting all of those events in motion. And then in the broadest sense of all, God has used sin sinlessly to bring you and me to know Christ, to know his redeeming love. John Owen put it this way, The greatest evil in the world is sin. And the greatest sin was the first, and yet Gregory feared not to cry, O Felix culpa, quae talum meruit redemptorum, O happy guilt, which found such a redeemer. And Thomas Ken translates Gregory this way in verse, What Adam did amiss, turned to our endless bliss. O happy guilt, which to atone drew filial God to leave his throne. (coughs) Rabbi Duncan puts it similarly, there would certainly have been no display of some of the divine attributes had sin not been. They would have been conserved forever in the depths of the adorable Godhead. And I have heard, by the way, our own Forrest Stone make the same point in his Sunday school class as well. Of course, the greatest example of all is God using sin and evil for good. Of all the examples that we could multiply from the scripture, I say the greatest one must be this, the cross. What more savage, more brutal act of man can you imagine? And what greater unleashing of Satan's power? And yet, Peter and John do not hesitate to proclaim that what Herod did and Pontius Pilate did and Jews and Gentiles did when they nailed Christ to the tree was, in fact, they say, God's hand and plan that had predestined to take place. Who put Jesus to death on the cross. Herod did. Pilate did. Jews and Gentiles did. Satan, no doubt, had a direct hand in it. And God. 
the greatest sin of all, the unspeakably cruel and merciless execution of the impeccably holy man, sinless to the last, and it was orchestrated to the smallest detail, to the ounce of blood that ran down that cross, to every word that was said, to the number of hammer blows to drive the spikes into the cross by the hand and the plan of God. They meant it for evil. We meant it for evil. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Even you, dear flock, and I. On the rock of this passage before us this morning in which Joseph looks his brothers in the face and says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And even more on the rock of whom Joseph is but the foreshadow, whose experience so exactly parallels yet so infinitely exceeds Joseph's betrayal and sale and false accusation and suffering. I say on these great works of God's providence in Joseph and even more in Jesus must shatter Every doubt, any and every doubt, that God is sovereign over all and is sovereignly working all, as Paul writes to the Romans, working all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things, even sin, even your own sin. For your good. Now, if I ask you, if in God's hands the greatest evil in all of history can produce the greatest good in all of the universe, surely, surely He is able to keep His promise to you to work all things for good to turn to your ultimate good, everything, absolutely everything in your life. Here, Rutherford once more, and then I am done. But listen how wonderfully he pulls it all together and traces the hand of God through darkness and light, through righteousness and sin, until he has knit a perfect pattern. There is a long chain and linking of God's ways, counsels, decrees, actions, events, judgments, mercies. And there is white and black. There is good and evil, crooked and straight, interwoven into this web. And the links of that chain, partly gold, partly brass, iron and clay, And the threads of his dispensation go along through the patriarch's days. Adam, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac. And are spun through the days of Moses and the church in Egypt and the wilderness. And come through the times of the kings of Israel and Judah and the captives of the church. And descend along through the generations of the prophets. Christ, the apostles, persecuting emperors and martyrdoms of the witnesses of Jesus, slain by the woman, drunken with the blood of the saints, till 
the end of the thread and the last link of the chain be tied to the very day of the marriage of the Lamb. Now in this long contexture of divine providence you see not one thread broken. Though this web be woven of threads of diverse colors, black and white, comfortable and sad passages of God's providence, yet all maketh a fair order in this long way. All is beauty and order to God. Amen.